Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined once again by renowned critic and dramatist Terry Teachout. We are going to turn to one of the movies he loves best and that fascinates me endlessly, The Night of the Hunter. Charles Lawton directing, Robert Mitchum starring with a fairly impressive cast from Peter Graves. I suppose everybody remembers him from Mission Impossible, but I remember him from Starlight 17. And of course, the airplane comedies that were rich, rich. And he had a very good role in Starlark 17, Billy Wilder's prison camp movie. There's uh, Shelley Winters, of course, James Gleason, who I saw in Frank Capra movies. There's the stage actor, Sivlin Warden. And above all, Lillian Gish, D.W. Griffith's favorite actress. And there are many other things to say in behalf of the cast and the work done behind the cameras as well. But this should suffice for starters. Now, Terry, thank you for joining me again. I was pleased to see that you love this movie and I'm anxious to get your thoughts and, of course, to start with, to talk about the great Charles Lawton. Yes, people who have a vague sense of who Charles Lawton was may be surprised to begin with to find out that he directed this film but does not appear in it, and second, that it is the only film he ever directed. Thereby hangs a very long tale, but for those who really do only know Lawton as Captain Bly, perhaps a little background is in order. Lawton started out in the 30s as kind of a prodigious British stage actor. He'd been a hotel keeper. He came from out of nowhere. and He was obsessed with theater, had done amateur theater, got professional training, and then exploded on the stage in a series of parts that made him, within a matter of a couple of years, one of England's leading character actors. Hollywood was always on the TV for people like that, so he was brought over to the United States and no less immediately established himself as that rarest of figures, an above-the-title character star who appeared in films as disparate as Rembrandt and The Hunchback of Notre Dame and most famously, of course, Mutiny on the Bounty. But Lawton was a very unusual-looking man. He was overweight. He had a face that he himself described He used a lot of different phrases for it, but my favorite one was when he said his face looked like a departing pachyderm. People like that don't get to play romantic leads. And eventually, their careers in film, in the United States at least, are likely to dry up. And by the time World War II was over, Lawton was increasingly finding himself appearing in film roles that were simply not worthy of his talent, you know, co-starring opposite Deanna Durbin, although he's quite charming in those films, but that's not the point. The point is that this is a very great and genuinely creative actor. And he finally figured out that he needed to establish himself in a parallel career outside film in order to fulfill his creative longings. He started by collaborating with Bertolt Brecht on the American premiere of Galileo. They collaborated on the translation, which was the first great translation of any play by Brecht, and which is still one of the very best translations of a foreign language play into English that has ever been done. And Lawton starred as Galileo in a small-scale production that was mounted in Los Angeles, brought to New York, didn't have a long-lasting run, but everybody suddenly remembered who Charles Lawton was. During the war, he had begun to give readings, first for soldiers and then just pretty much wherever he could, because he really enjoyed reading from the classics and from anything. 
he read the story of Nebuchadnezzar on the Ed Sullivan show early in the 50s. And a young producer named Paul Gregory saw this program and immediately went down to the stage door and said, I can make you a million dollars. Gregory's proposal was to put Lawton on the road in a one-man show in which he read and talked about literature that he loved. And Gregory delivered on the promise. Lawton appeared all over the United States as a barnstorming touring artist, and it put him on the cover of Time. It revived his career, and he and Gregory began to work together on other projects. It was Gregory's idea that Lawton should be directing more than acting. He came up first with the idea of a project in which Lawton would direct Agnes Moorhead, Charles Boyer, and Cedric Hardwick in a performance of Don Juan in Hell, the scene from Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman, in which the four characters are, are conversing in Hell. It was done with the utmost simplicity. The four of them simply stood for podia at center stage, pretended to read, although they had actually memorized the parts. They toured almost as much as Lawton had as a solo reader and were as successful. Then Gregory brought Lawton to Broadway and did a similarly simple stage version of the novel The Cain Mutiny, uh, in which Henry Fonda starred, which was also enormously successful. This is before the film had come out. At this point, it became clear the logical next step for Lawton was to direct a film. And Gregory brought him a novel, the first novel by a young writer named Davis Grubb called The Night of the Hunter. It had come out, I think, in 1953. It was a novel about a psychotic preacher obsessed with sex who weds widows and murders them for their money and then moves on to other widows. But of course, the novel is much more complex than that, has much more to say than that. Lawton was fascinated by it, and he said, get the rights. So Gregory got the rights. He worked out a production deal. The film was done through United Artists, and the catch was, obviously, that they had to cast somebody very well-known in it. Lawton was a great admirer of Robert Mitchum, whom he took quite seriously as an actor. So he approached Mitchum, told him what the film was about, told him he wanted to play the preacher. And Mitchum, who at that point was just seen as a kind of a sexy, tough guy, was thrilled, just as Lawton had been thrilled, at the idea of working on so unusual a piece of material and working with Lawton himself. With Mitchum's presence in the cast, they were able to get funding, and The Night of the Hunter went into production. And it's quite a remarkable production. One wouldn't have suspected that Lawton, primarily an actor and starting on the stage, would care so much about visual aspects and about matters of editing. How to get through scenes and sequences, playing out everything you can, getting everything you can out of shots of rivers, of the moonlight, of animals on the river shore. It's not at all what you expect from a first-time film director with no experience in film directing who is known almost entirely as an actor. And it suggests what people had been saying about Lawton and continue to say about him for the rest of his life in the words of Laurence Olivier. Olivier said he was the only actor he'd ever known who was a genius. It's very tricky calling an actor a genius, but when you see Night of the Hunter, it becomes very difficult to disagree with that because from out of nowhere, with no relevant experience other than the stage productions, and directing for the stage is a very different kettle of fish than directing for the camera, it's clear that Lawton had been born to do this, that he was not just somebody who put actors in front of a camera and told them to talk. 
but somebody who was interested in making a completely unified work of visual and dramatic art in which every aspect of the production is significant and contributes to the total effect. And he also understood that it was essential that he collaborate closely with his fellow uh, members of the production team, most specifically Stanley Cortez, the director of photography, and Hilliard Brown, the art director. Still, after all these years, and I don't know how many times I've seen Night of the Hunter, most recently, two nights ago, when I was prepping for this podcast, I just cannot fathom how somebody who had never directed a film was able to create one so personal, with so much self-assurance, not just in handling of actors, but in every aspect of the production. It's a kind of miracle. Yeah. Stanley Cortez, who shot the movie, said in a startling piece of praise that he had only worked with two directors who understood light, what it means in a movie. Lawton was one. The other, of course, was Orson Welles, for whom he had shot The Magnificent Ambersons. Now, that's high praise. That's the highest possible praise. And from a man who wasn't necessarily disposed to give praise. Cinematographers very often feel, not without reason, that their contribution to a film is being overlooked in favor of that of the director or the star. And Cortez unstintingly gave this praise. He made it clear that Lawton worked closely with him as a collaborator. But he also made it clear that the source of the creative direction of the film came from Lawton himself. And that essentially, Cortez simply taught him how to use what Orson Welles called the box of toys. In other words, he helped him get the images out of Lawton's head and onto the screen. But uh, the ideas were there in the first place. That's the miracle. And I know you've inquired into the history of the movie, which is unusually well told and well researched, and has led to insights and discoveries even in this century. 50 years after the movie was made, things have been discovered of great importance, and maybe we can move on to discussing the screenplay of James Agee. Yes, let's pause for a moment. As you and I have said in previous podcasts, very few films have been treated in the way that is necessary by historians in order to make reasonably definitive statements about who is responsible for what. Primary source research is not something that is normally conducted on Hollywood films, and yet it's absolutely essential if you're going to make a claim that Charles Lawton is the auteur of The Night of the Hunter then you've really got to know what that means. Uh, what relationship did he have with the entire production team? And most particularly, who wrote the script? Who was responsible for it? What role did he play in that? Lawton brought in James Agee to write the first draft of the script for Night of the Hunter. Now, Agee was, of course, the most celebrated film critic of his time in the United States. He had written the screenplay for John Huston's The African Queen. He had real talent in this area, and he was fascinated by the subject matter because The Night of the Hunter, Davis Grubb's original novel, is a very black satire of hard-shell Southern Protestantism, a subject which was near and dear to James Agee's heart, that and Depression-era poverty, and that's where the film is set. Lawton turned Agee loose on the script, and what we were told for years and years, particularly by Paul Gregory, the producer who had his own agenda, was that Agee turned in an unshootable script. Gregory claimed it was the size of a phone book. And since the producer of the film said this, and Lawton didn't say anything himself, he was dead by then, it was taken for granted that Gregory was telling the truth. But as I say, primary source research has been done on this film. Two very important books about it have been written. 
Preston Neal Jones's Heaven and Hell to play with, the filming of The Night of the Hunter, and Jeffrey Couchman's The Night of the Hunter, a biography of a film. Couchman found the first draft script, and he found that while it was quite long, it was twice the length of the final shooting script, it was quite clear that this script had been used not just as a starting point. It hadn't been jettisoned. Lawton didn't rewrite the script from scratch. It was the original basis for the film. And that, as far as we can tell, Lawton's contribution to the script is pretty much identical to Orson Welles's contribution to Herman Mankiewicz's script for Citizen Kane. He didn't write it. What he did do was serve as an extremely creative editor, cutting it to size, making it more linear, clearer, tighter, not just as a stenographer type editor, but as somebody who really had used the editing process to bring the script closer to what he himself had imagined. And as a result, it was Lawton who, when A.G. said he didn't want a solo screenwriting credit, Lawton insisted that A.G. be the only name on the film as screenwriter. He was quite serious about that. Lawton was a surprisingly modest man. And I think he understood, as we now do from having access to the screenplay, that while Lawton had contributed greatly to the screenplay, it was not as a writer. It was as an editor. This is one of the first myths about Night of the Hunter that has been cleared up through primary source research. James Agee was in an advanced state of alcoholism when he worked on the screenplay, no question about it. But his contribution to it is highly significant, highly serious, and is in substantial part responsible for what gets seen and said in the film of the utmost importance. Yeah, it is true. It's a vast script, nearly 300 pages, but it is at the same time almost shot for shot or scene for scene what you see on screen. The man deserved his credit and not the slanders he was hit with for so long. But you're also right about Lawton. That's such an important thing to notice. What it means to realize of a story, what do you have to leave out? You can put so much in, but not more. And it's interesting to study these things just to realize how did he think about it? How did he discover the through lines and what had to be discarded? But at the same time, when you watch the movie, you experience at an emotional level this kind of intelligent decision-making because there's nothing that shouldn't be there and there's nothing missing that should be there. That's That's what makes a work of art a work of art. Right, exactly right. And we should also say that the film is, although more compact, entirely faithful to the spirit of the novel, uh, because Davis Grubb was also deeply involved in the production process. Is Specifically, Lawton asked Grubb to sketch scenes from the novel. Grubb was a talented amateur artist, and he produced, well, hundreds of pen sketches of what he imagined the characters look like, what he imagined the settings look like. And Lawton turned these over to Hilliard Brown, the art director, and to Cortez, because he took this seriously. He believed deeply in the power and significance of the source material, the novel. And he was determined to put it on screen, not in a literal way. You can't film a novel literally. It's too long but in a way that would do justice to what Grubb had done. And Grubb was very rightly completely satisfied with the final results. Yeah, that's a fascinating detail that I think everybody who's interested in movies should pay attention to for what it says. Here you have an author who didn't just put pen to paper, but also put pen to paper to draw stuff out because of the importance of a character's look, 
his expression, his gesture in a certain scene. That conveys so much, and it is the primary means of in-scene characterization. And a director who is modest enough and serious enough to ask for and use this kind of creative input from everybody he's working with. Remember that even though Charles Lawton at this point was not getting good roles in the movies, he was still one of the most famous character actors in the world. And his career had been jump-started to a fantastic degree by his stage work. As I mentioned earlier, he made the cover of Time magazine, which in the 40s and 50s was a very big deal. Lawton was as well-known, really, as anybody in Hollywood. He didn't have to collaborate, but he not only said he wanted to collaborate, but he followed through and impressed everybody who worked with him, including some very hard nuts, starting with Robert Mitchum, as a man of phenomenal gifts, but also a man who understood that the essence of the creative act of drama is collaboration. He knew it, he meant it, he did it. Yeah, as we've had occasion to talk about before, greatness in an artist is often, but especially in the case of the movies, tied up with recognizing touches of greatness in other artists. Respecting that and allowing it to thrive and in certain ways rewarding it. The director Lawton and the producer Paul Gregory offered a small but really morally important stake in the movie's proceeds, a 1% cut to various of the important men behind the camera. That's right. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. They do in the theater. And that, of course, is where Lawton's background comes from. But to have done that with a film where the bottom line is considered the ultimate measure of success, that just says everything about what it meant. And we talk about bringing the best out of people. Let's talk about Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum was a very great screen actor when he wanted to be. But he was cynical about the business with good reason. Uh, he had been used in cynical ways by many directors, though by no means all. And he had very rarely been challenged uh, to the limits of his ability by the films he had made up to the point when The Night of the Hunter went into production. Um, Lawton, who knew talent when he saw it, believed deeply uh, that Mitchum was a serious artist. In fact, after the film was made, he said, you know, Bob could have done anything. He, he, could, he could be King Lear if he wanted. Uh, and Lawton didn't say things like that unless he meant them. Uh, and Mitchum, who, as I say, was a very hard nut and could be extraordinarily difficult to deal with if he didn't take you seriously. Uh, brought his very best game to this film, uh, encouraged by Mitchum, encouraged by Lawton. He gives a performance that is, although recognizably related to his other screen work, is unique in its extreme, I, I would say, operatic quality. Uh, he presents this preacher as being a figure much, much larger than life, uh, a, a man of colossal perverted vitality uh, and the perversion ties directly into the theme of the film the, the underlying theme of the night of the hunter is that the natural world is that to which we must aspire and that human sexuality is as natural as any other part of this world and that when it is thwarted uh, as it was thwarted in the preacher by his determination uh, to remain celibate and his hatred of, of sexually self-assured women whom he kills 
Uh, he, he, he uses a switchblade on them. Um, everything goes wrong when you refer, when you refuse to accept uh, the natural world in this particular aspect. Well, Lawton obviously was drawn to this theme because he was himself a deeply closeted and frustrated homosexual. Now, Mitchum is fascinated by it because he's a guy who wants to live his life exactly the way he wants and who likes women. Uh, and, uh, uh, the two of them bonded on this film to bring out this theme with astonishing clarity. There is just no question in your mind as you watch this film. You, you know that The Night of the Hunter is one of those films where every gesture is significant. Every symbol is, is, is important. But the symbolism is extremely clear. You're never in any doubt about what is being said. It's not, it's not blunt. It's not overly obvious. But you know where you stand and you know what the film is about. And in this film, Robert Mitchum is is very clearly a symbol of thwarted sexuality and the terrible damage that it can do to a personality. Um, and it, he didn't usually play uh, characters of thwarted sexuality. And it was his genius as an actor. And I think uh, Mitchum was one of the very greatest screen actors we've ever had to show that when you repress an impulse in one direction, it pours out of you in other directions. Here is this mad, flamboyant, black-clad preacher in a, in a slouch hat who has the words love and hate tattooed on his knuckles, uh, uh, who speaks like a preacher in all of his dealings with, with human beings, uh, is always standing in the pulpit, except when he sees the opportunity for money when the glint appears in his eyes and he is capable of threatening to tear off the arms of children. Uh, that's quite a performance. And there's nothing self-protective about it. Remember, Lawton's a very big star. I mean, uh, Mitchum is a very big Hollywood star. Uh, and a guy who had come close to wrecking his career in a marijuana bust a few years earlier than that. He had every reason to be self-protective. And yet he gives a performance here in which he, uh, so to speak, lets it all hang out and the result is the best thing he ever did as a screen actor uh, a performance of staggering uh, vitality staggering and shocking vitality that that word shock it's, i'm sure it's going to come up a lot in this discussion this is a film made in the eisenhower era that still has the ability to shock us today and one of the most shocking things about it is is robert mitchum's performance it is so direct so uh, crude is not the right word because it's not a crude performance, but the vitality is crude. Uh, it, it just leeches out of his pores. Um, if that doesn't frighten you, you're not watching the screen. Yeah, you're right. He acknowledged as much that this was the the epitome of his achievements, of his work. This, this is as good as he got. And when once you see this, you can see in a number of his movies both the, the tendency of his menace, he's not just a strong silent type, he could start speechifying on you. And also what he's holding back, you are, his quality as a noir hero, a lot of it depends on the suggestion that there's more to him, that there is a depth to him that could become scary, but is also alluring. And if you want to see it brought out, in the right context, in the right setting, with the right story to its full expression, this is it. Yes. And 
Let's talk about another piece of casting and what it tells us about the film. Lillian Gish. Uh, Gish had been, uh, in the 20s, uh, one of the first great screen stars of Hollywood, uh, the preferred actress and close collaborator of, of D.W. Griffith. When Lawton started to work on this film and was trying to figure out what it should look like, um, he started thinking about silent movies, both Griffith and the great German expressionists, because he saw the story that he wanted to tell. This is his phrase as a nightmarish sort of mother goose tale. And he understood that the stripped down simplicity of silent film would allow him uh, to, to heighten the imagery of, that he had in mind. This is, this is not a realistic-looking film, uh, and it's not realistic not just because they were doing it on the cheap, but because that was the way Lawton wanted to do it. He wanted very stripped-down interiors, stripped down to, to their ultimate essences, a ceiling and a wall, a, a window, uh, a courtroom that simply consists of the... Of the, the a judge and a picture of Abraham Lincoln in the background, uh, a strip joint that is simply a handful of demented looking men in overalls sitting, watching a woman taking her clothes off. Um, and as I say, Lawton was doing this because he wanted a kind of engagement that he remembered from the early days of film. Uh, I'll quote what he said to Lillian Gish. Uh, he said, when I first went to the movies, they sat in their seats straight and leaned forward. Now they slump down with their heads back and eat candy and popcorn. I want them to sit up straight again. And so for the role of, of, of the woman who in the Depression era is taking care of stray children, a kind of figure of, of knowing innocence, you know, not a naive, somebody who knows the way the world works but is determined to protect innocent children from the corruption of the world. He goes to Lillian Gish, who played exactly that kind of figure in silent film. And she was a real artist, too. And to her credit, she knew what he was up to. And she said yes as well. And it, her appearance in the film, uh, which happens about two-thirds of the way in, I think, is as essential to defining the film's expressive properties as is Mitchum's. The, the two performances are the polar opposites in the film. Um, and just as The Night of the Hunter is a film about thwarted sexuality, it is also a film about the natural innocence of childhood. Uh, the children in this film are exalted because of their innocence. Um, it's inevitable that they will become knowing. Uh, one of the young girls that uh, Lillian Gish takes care of you know, is, is a girl on the edge of puberty who has suddenly discovered boys and, and uh, is thrilled by them. Uh, and you would expect uh, that Gish's character would be horrified by this. What she is is accepting of it. She realizes that this, too, is the part of development. It's, a, it's, a, it's part of the natural growth process of human beings. Uh, and... In the great Odyssey scene, in which the two children, Shelley Winter's two children, uh, Lawton has killed her, or uh, uh, Mitchum has killed her, and the children escape from him, uh, they engage in an Odyssey down the river. They take a riverboat down it, and uh, we see uh, a startling 
silent movie type pictures of owls and frogs in, in the natural world. Uh, and they're not there for a gratuitous reason. They are there to remind us of the world of innocence that these children inhabit. Uh, they suggest an almost pantheistic view of nature, which is juxtaposed with uh, the, the perverted view of Mitchum's preacher character. Um, again, as, as I say, this is a film in which everything you see is intended. There are no accidents in it. Everything is telling you something. And, and amazingly, for a highly symbolic film, it doesn't feel heavy. It doesn't feel cluttered. And as a result, every time you see it, you see something new in it. Uh, every time. Um, uh, when I screened it a couple of days ago, uh, this film uses a number of establishing helicopter shots uh, of the prison uh, into which Lawton has been sent, of the river itself. Uh, and it suddenly hit me. Uh, what we are seeing is a God's eye view of the of the world of men and nature. But it is a God who is detached, who simply sees, but not, but does not take action. Uh, it's a, and I never thought of that. And as I say, I've been watching this film for 20 years. Um, that is surely the mark of a truly rich masterpiece. That you strip away new layers of complexity, as you do when you see Vertigo every time you see it. Uh, it is always new. It is self-renewing. Yeah, so to Lillian Gish is also, of course, the face you first see in the movie in a strange sequence that introduces the movie as a combination of motherly love long before, as you said, you actually meet this uh, mother to so many lost children in the depression and it is also um, a, a biblical warning you are told to beware of false prophets and you are told that by their fruits you shall know them and the, the this establishes uh, the, the problem of the movie at the large social level why are Americans so gullible about religion that somehow this is the weak spot in America, that a man so insane and at the same time so intelligent could figure out that the devil has got to come in the guise of a priest in order to fully corrupt people. And uh, it's, it's remarkable to see both the insight, which is, say, rather better than Elmer Gantry or any other number of stories yes. with this theme, and which is, of course something in the news it, it it seems every year these days with uh, various priestly abuses in various religions so it's by no means something that has gone away because innocence and trust haven't gone away and this weighs heavily in the movie whom do children trust and whether that trust is rewarded that innocence protected or on the other hand it is betrayed and the somehow the contrary part to this uh, incredibly charming priest, uh, a man who has to be operatic as, uh, as Mitchum plays him at times, partly because otherwise it would be uh, re repressively, stiflingly uh, scary, and partly because it, it's supposed to bring out, as you said, the vitality of the man. There is something incredibly charming. You're supposed to see through his performance 
why such men can make careers, why people trust them, how magnetic they are, how they attract people and persuade them. And this is always tied up with the fact that to an extent they are menacing. Yes. People have and to that, that, that brings us to Shelley. That brings us to Shelley Winters, uh, the only victim of his that we see in the film. Um, uh, Winters had been working in a private acting studio that Lawton was teaching acting in Hollywood. Uh, not not in the conventional sense of being a teacher. It was a studio he put together. Uh, he worked with Winters. He worked with Robert Ryan. He worked with a number of very notable figures. Uh, she was a young woman uh, who was and is uh, remembered as a very lush, uh, lushly attractive person. But she was quite serious about her art. And uh, when Mitchum decided to cast her, uh, he was looking for an, an actor who could project simultaneously a great sexual passion and a, and a strange kind, again, of innocence. We've used that word to get quite a bit. Uh, and he nailed it with her. She was absolutely perfect in this. Um, you believe in her as a as an, a southern girl, a widow woman, as as we say down south, um, who is still very much subject to fleshly desire. She sees this this fantastically charming and sexy preacher come along. She has two children. They need a father. Of course, she should want to marry him. And then uh, on her wedding night, she makes a terrifying discovery, which is that he is a, a mad celibate who believes that sex is evil. And he is so charismatic that he persuades her to embrace this view against her entire nature. Those are some of the most frightening scenes in the film, uh, the scenes that take place in their shared bedroom. Uh, he turns her into a traveling preacher like him. Um, and, and, you know, I, we I kind of think of Shelley Winters as a sort of joke, uh, partly now, partly because of the other roles she played, partly because of her own uh, very funny reminiscences of, of her life as uh, a woman who slept with a lot of men. Uh, she was very straightforward about that. But once again, you cannot watch this film without realizing that there is great talent at work here. And Lawton, having worked with her closely, knew what she was capable of, got the best out of her. And Mitchum, although he didn't like Shelley Winters uh, and said really disagreeable things with her about her after the film was over, uh, maybe in part because of that, uh, his performance clearly suggests simultaneously attraction and repulsion, uh, a very, very powerful dichotomy to show on the screen. Yeah, there's it's it's so well done that if you don't know Shelley Winters, you you won't know how strange it is. But if you have seen her in other places, you will hardly recognize her. And the, the, the startling stuff starts only after you recognize her. She said rightly about her part that this was the one time she did what she was supposed to do to bring out the role without any concern for her career for her identity as a star for her uh, ability to cash in somehow on fame just to try to get the story right and to, to tell it truly on, on the yes. camera and she was of course right it's uh, uh, again with her you see that there's a lot of, of, of natural power in her, and at the same time that 
it, it's it's not working out there's there's trouble within her that makes her weak that invites something that will will destroy her it's one of the strangest things about the story how clear it is about the fact that inviting little evils in which we can always excuse as reasonable and it is you know it's not just normal life can somehow lead to massive catastrophes indeed it's only at the end when Lillian Gish confronts the the evil preacher that you see somebody who rejects him off the bat there's she doesn't give him a finger she doesn't give him a chance she uh, immediately uh, confronts him and pulls a shotgun on him and there you see uh, w one of the harsh lessons and you begin to appreciate how the other characters before that had opened themselves up to something that they never should have. And it's, it's, it's hard to, to figure out exactly what that is. It's, it's not like Lawton is telling you or the novelist to be paranoid or inhuman, by no means. But they're incredibly acutely aware of how charm opens us up to evil in a way yes. that we do not want to... Uh, to, to address because we ourselves don't quite grasp our natures and what is conducive to happiness and what is conducive to destruction. Let's put this in a larger religious perspective by looking at a novel that came out of a, a couple of years before The Night of the Hunter that was itself turned into a film of real quality and consequence a number of years later by another great director, John Huston. That is Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood. Uh, a novel that was, I think it fair to say, completely misunderstood at the time of its publication. Uh, it is a satire of, of Southern religion, Southern Protestantism, written by an extremely Orthodox Catholic who lived in the middle of this world and who saw the problem of her characters as being uh, specifically of Hazel Motes, uh, the, the, the traveling preacher, so to speak, in Wise Blood, uh, that they were, in fact, in touch with the true religious spirit, but they were not able to channel and focus it through right doctrine, uh, the doctrine of Orthodox Catholicism. And as a result, uh, they, they go all over the map in their attempts to, to, to understand uh, the grace that has been settled on them. Um, in something of the same thing is happening uh, in the Night of the Hunter. And uh, it is, again, stated quite explicitly in lines from the novel that make their way into the screenplay early in the film. Um, we haven't quite clarified the relationships, by the way. Peter Graves is the first husband of Shelley Winters, and uh, he commits a crime and is executed for it. Uh, and hides the money that he got from the crime uh, in the doll of, of Shelley Winter's little girl. Um, so Graves and Robert Mitchum end up in the same jail cell. And uh, 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 Mitchum, who is always looking for his next victim, uh, realizes that uh, it's been handed to him. It's going to be Peter Graves' soon-to-be widow. And he's presenting himself as a preacher, trying to offer a sucker to uh, Graves, who is quite reasonably suspicious. And Graves asks him, what religion you profess, preacher, very suspiciously. And uh, Lawton's or, uh, uh, Mitchum's response is, the religion the Almighty and me worked out betwixt us. 
you you could not have a better definition of Southern Protestantism, uh, enthusiastic religion. Uh, and the film, in one way, it can be interpreted as a film that illustrates what happens when you try to work out your own religion between betwixt you and God. Uh, you may uh, come up with something that's pretty decent, or you may end up becoming a psychotic murderer. Uh, it's very dangerous. Um, I'm not aware that Davis Grubb was influenced by Wise Blood. I, it would be perfectly logical for him not to have been since the novel was not well received when it came out. But it is striking how the two books cover the same ground. And when John Huston, many years later, decided to film Wise Blood, um, although he was not himself a religious man, uh, he was uh, alert to this aspect of the book. And somewhat against his own will, as he admitted afterwards, he found himself making a movie that was quite quite faithful to the spirit of what O'Connor was trying to say. Um, so it's really important to see Night of the Hunter, like Wise Blood, as a film, which is in essence about American uh, hard shell Protestantism and its discontents. Um, that is one of its important aspects. Uh, and it is, as we have said here, it's a warning. Uh, it's couched as a warning from the very first shots of the film. Uh, Lillian Gish tells us so. We are to be aware of and wary of false prophets. Yes. And the, it's remarkable, just like with Flannery O'Connor's stories, how mundane how everyday the events are and how astutely the story brings out the fundamental human conflicts in an everyday life in everyday occurrences how 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 is it possible that the the devil could take the form of a preacher and wander the depression era south well there's an answer to that and you get it in this movie it's incredibly believable because it is so mundane but it is at the same time very revealing uh, as you said before this is not a realistically shot or presented movie it's always a little too movie-like which gives it a, a bit of the aspect of a myth or a fable but is at the same time incredibly mundane and strewn with symbols that seem both to fit into the place and to jump out at you to suggest you that there's something deeper going on here if you but pay attention that the world around you has things to reveal things to which you should be paying attention and an artful reconstruction of it is not supposed to transform the world but only to reveal it as it is let me tell you a story and many years ago when she was still alive i showed this film to my mother uh, who was a, a small-town Southern Baptist. Uh, she was intelligent, but in no way an intellectual. She was not widely traveled. She liked movies, but, you know, you didn't particularly think of her as somebody who would be drawn to art movies. Uh, and I, I, she liked Robert Mitchum, and I was curious to see how she responded to it. She was not only thrilled by the movie, but in the most basic way, she got the point, which was that it was about false prophets. And she took that point very seriously, this, this, this unsophisticated uh, but morally serious woman. Uh, and I, yeah. I, like to think, I like to think that Lawton would have been moved by that story because he, one of the reasons why he devoted so much of his energy to giving readings of great literature all over the country 
was because he believed deeply in the American people and their their willingness, their desire, their passion to learn. Yeah. And I think it would have thrilled him to find out that years after the fact, the film had hit a small town woman in Southern Baptist that way. And it's it's true to the entire construction of the story. It is about moral seriousness and that you need that in order to be able to look at the world around you and to understand it for what it is. The the way we're presented with false prophets, it doesn't look like Bronze Age era Israel. It looks like America in the 30s. And and then what is a prophet in our times? Of course, you would ask what a prophet is in our own times, and it would be probably somewhat closer to celebrity or to politics for that matter. But it's but it's certainly the case that uh, the the question of grace and perversions of it is urgent for us as it was uh, for Lauten and as it was before that for as as long as human beings have been aware of their problematic humanity. Now the, the 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 way to think about it, I think, for Americans is tied up very much with what you were saying about fixing a religion betwixt you and God. That is to say how wildly misguided we are when we talk about charisma and charismatic men. Mostly, it is said of men who are not at all graced and who are not coming with God's grace or, or, or with any love for fellow men. It is somehow we don't dare say that these people are rather on the demonic side, not on the charismatic side. There is demonic. That's a really important word to use in connection with Mitchum's performance and the film as a whole. Yep. I... Uh, sat- satanic, I would go so far as to say. Yes, and and of course when Lauten uh, told him about what he wanted out of the performance, he plainly put it to him. You know, this guy, this character you're playing, is a diabolical shit. And yes, that, that was the exact phrase that he used. And yes. of course, Mitchum answered, present. Yep, he, <laughs> he, knew, he knew his material. Let's, let's move in a very different direction. I always love to talk about film scores. And this is an unusual one, because Walter Schumann, who wrote the score, this was the last important thing he did, he died young, uh, is not well remembered. Uh, the only thing that he's really remembered for now is he wrote the music for Dragnet. Uh, the radio and TV series of, of Jack Webb's. Um, but he had worked on Broadway with Lawton. Uh, one of Lawton's pre uh, Night of the Hunter projects was a staged version of Stephen Vincent Benet's uh, um, epic poem, John Brown's Body. And uh, uh, he commissioned uh, Walter Schumann to write a score for an a cappella choir that was used as a background for the film. And he was enormously impressed by Schumann's gifts. And Schumann was the only choice, his only choice for scoring the film. And this is really a remarkable film score, really extraordinary. It, it weaves together uh, uh, the hymns that, that the mad preacher likes to sing, especially leaning on the everlasting arms. Uh, 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 beautiful themes uh, that are meant to suggest the innocence of nature and, and the child characters were being pursued, but also genuinely frightening uh, music cues uh, where I sort of hear the sound of Tosca of all things, that, that opening, uh, the opening chords when we're, we're warned of the demonic qualities of Scarpia. Uh, uh, the, if Schumann had lived, 
I think he would have become quite an important film school film composer. And this film shows it. Um, you, you, again, you want a powerful score for a powerful film like this. But it was Lawton's genius to want a score that was got right out there. It, this is not a background score. Uh, these music cues really grab you around the throat, especially the violent and shocking ones. Uh, uh, and yet it's not a horror movie score either. The most, the most terrifying shot in the film is one in which we see uh, Shelley Winter's corpse uh, at the bottom of a river. She's in a car. Uh, her throat has been slit. Her hair is weaving like seaweed. And uh, a lesser composer would have given us shock music here. Uh, what Walter Schumann gave us uh, instead is a variation on the exquisite nature music. Uh, it's a it's a peaceful, tranquil uh, musical cue, but it's transformed a little uh, to show the strangeness, the bizarre quality of the scene. Uh, again, this is something for which you need to have been in the room when he and Lawton were discussing it, but wherever the impetus for this came, uh, it's it's one of the very best uses I can think of of film music to add an extra layer of meaning and dramatic intensity to a scene. Um, and this is a film that needs that. Uh, it would have worked with a lesser score, I think. But uh, it's because it has so the, the, the high quality of the score puts that last layer of excellence and symbolic clarity onto the storytelling. Um, and uh, again, here's further proof that Lawton understood that every aspect of the filmmaking process contributes to its total effect. And he was determined to get the effect that he wanted. And he got it. Yes. Uh, this, this happens to be the answer to a question we don't ask as often as we should. What could you add to Flannery O'Connor if you were to put it on screen? Music is the obvious answer, but it is so hard to do. As you pointed out, the, the principal difficulty is that whereas hymns make sense in the setting, movie music doesn't. And right. yet it sweeps you up and you follow along with it. It's it, it doesn't even exactly instruct you. What it does is move you along in a way that feels completely natural, although you know for a fact, if you think about it, that it doesn't belong there. That's a rare artistic achievement, but that is what is required uh, of, of movies as works of art and uh, take one example the scene you mentioned you're not supposed to be screaming there you're supposed to be paralyzed yes you're supposed to feel hopelessness powerlessness to experience the, the the sadness that comes with realizing that this evil has been done and this woman has been destroyed who was so so innocuous so harmless herself and the and take another example uh, as you pointed out Robert Mitchum keeps singing leaning now at the end in one of the other shocking scenes in the movies he's stalking Lillian Gish and the children and he sings and you get the sense again and again in the movie how terrifying this man is because of this calm song and she sings along with him, which seems shocking. Yes. They harmonize, but at the same time, she adds something from the original hymn that he always leaves out, which is Jesus. She says, leaning on Jesus. And I had I never noticed this up until we I watched it with my wife last night, and she, she picked all sorts of these things out that I, that I, it had never occurred to me before, but they're 
obvious, although you don't quite notice them, and they're so important as choices and as what they do to reveal the themes and to work through the symbols that the, the movie so adroitly puts together. Let me give you a contrasting example and a highly relevant one, the score of John Huston's film Wise Blood. It was written by Alex North, who's a wonderful film composer, but somebody who I think quite clearly had no sense of what southern rural life was like. So he writes a score that makes Hollywoodish use of, of southern hymnody, and it's slick. And it, it, it adds a layer of TV-like slickness to a film that doesn't have it. And it doesn't wreck the film. Weisblood is really quite a remarkable screen adaptation of O'Connor's work. But it really distances you from what's happening on the screen in a way that it shouldn't. Uh, and um, that's something that never happens with Schumann's score for, for Night of the Hunter. And with the use of music, not just... Uh, on the soundtrack, but diegetically, I mean, the fact that well, Robert Mitchum was actually quite a good singer, a uh, semi-professional singer, and his singing of Leaning on the Everlasting Arms is beautiful and haunting, and if I may say so, quite straight. Uh, when he appears in his capacity as a preacher in the film, he never seems straight. He's he's oily, he's slippery, he's he's... You can tell that something is wrong with him if you're not caught up in his spell. But when he sings, uh, he's in touch with something true. And you realize that in him, the religious impulse is real. It is simply twisted. Yes. I think the singing the singing brings out this, this reality. Yes. It is the fact that it is so simple and lovely that makes it all the more frightening when the, these two lovely children uh, hear him approaching them and singing and uh, they're frightened and they as well they should be haven't said anything about the kids by the way but uh, uh billy chapin uh, who was a at that point quite a talented child actor and a, a young girl a five-year-old girl named jane bruce uh, who played the, the two children give completely unselfconscious unmannered performances and chapin is really acting there is great subtlety in his performance and interestingly lawton didn't know what to do with the kids. Uh, he didn't have any experience with small children. Uh, Mitchum ended up do, as functioning as their dialogue director because they really got along with him. Uh, and uh, again, it's um, it's kind of a miracle that Lawton was willing to let an actor uh, take over this important role in the realization of the film. But he knew that you work with what you've got. And if you're smart, you take advantage of what you've got. And uh, uh, my favorite use of the children is is something that ties together the beginning and end of the film. At the beginning of the film, we see uh, Peter Graves, uh, Billy Chapin's father. Uh, the, the police arrive, they throw him to the ground, they point guns at him, they're tying him up. And in a scene, in a shot that is, we're clearly meant to remember this, although we don't know that it's being underlined for us, uh, here, Billy Chapin is looking at his father. He's been thrown to the ground. This is his father. He may be a criminal, but he's, he's the man he loves. And he says, no, don't. And he's completely moved and, and horrified by the fact that his father is going to be taken off to die. At the very end of the film, Mitchum, the police catch up with Mitchum. 
and they throw him to the ground in exactly the same way as happens with Peter Graves at the beginning of the film. And in a, a shot set up identical to the one seen at the beginning of the film, we see Billy Chapin saying the same thing. No, don't. And he's saying this about a man who was trying to kill him and, and his sister. And yet he is so profoundly innocent that, that even though he knows that this man was going to do terrible things to him, he, he, he too deserves to be treated with a kind of mercy. Uh, and and uh, Chapin, the boy, feels this so deeply that he refuses to identify Mitchum in the trial scene that follows. Um, that's a wonderful uh, screen gesture. It's very moving. But it's also a, a child performance where something quite sophisticated has happened. Uh, and yet it's not done in a sophisticated way. You don't feel, as, as you often feel with a, a child actor like Brandon DeWild, uh, that the performance is a little too knowing, a little too self-conscious. This is completely unselfconscious. And if Robert Mitchum played a role in getting that performance out of Billy Chapin, then Robert Mitchum was a talented director himself. Yes, you're right. And this, of course, is very important because, again, it's just something we would never be willing to admit that the boy is somehow falling in love with this man as a father, even though he knows that the man is trying to murder him, because there's more to the man than that. And and he's not always acting out normality. He's not simply a psychopath. And, uh, and the kid, to some extent, recognizes it and to some extent has to hope that there is something good in, in, in the world of giants, of adults, that, that impose their will on him, just like his... There's a, a possibility of redemption. Uh, yeah. you and know, at the same I, time, of course, it's, a, it's, it's a, a way of beginning to recognize the enormous crime of his father. Yes. It works both ways. This is, this, this is a film that it's stripped down, it's simple, it's non-realistic in many important ways, but there is nothing cartoonish about it. It is exactly, exactly what Lawton said it was. It's a fable. Uh, and it's a fable, as he said, quite specifically told from the point of view of the children, through the eyes of the innocent children on, on, on whose world, as you say, giants are intruding. Uh, giants whose values are not to be trusted until we reach the end of the film and meet Lillian Gish, uh, a, a figure of of profound goodness, not naive innocence, but knowing goodness. Um, uh, and all of this is coming through the eyes of, of the kids. Uh, and uh, those two children give performances that, again, could easily have sunk the film had there been any trace of self-consciousness about it. But they seem completely real. They seem like children. Yes. Always the key to good child acting. And that's uh, it's it's strange to to have something so hard to do and at the same time so essential to the to the movie. Not just because half of the second act is simply them on the run on the river in a very American Mark Twain Huck Finn sort of montage so you you can't do without them the the, the Lauten hung his project on this even though it was the thing he he knew least about so it's quite quite a risk to take 
and uh, at the same time it serves to further something that we've noticed in both Vertigo and then in Laura, what I like to call the dialectics of uh, innocence and respectability. Mm. Violence always comes in the guise of respectability. Our unwillingness to recognize violence hiding behind respectability is the way we betray innocence. It's not because we're evil monsters doing horrifying things. Most of us are not, but most of us do turn our heads now and then in ways we know we shouldn't. And the the, the symmetrical opposite actually to, to the boy's refusal to incriminate the, this, this murderer is the woman who pushed the preacher onto her mother and who pushed the children into his arms, who identifies the children as his would-be victims for a baying mob that's trying to lynch them. And of course this again suggests something serious that people turn into a lynch mob to destroy this man out of a sense of shame because they were taken in. They, they wanted to believe him an angel and they want to treat him like a beast now because they weren't circumspect when they should have and they feel very ashamed of themselves now. And this woman has no compunction about identifying these two kids who have been through a horror to, to expose them to the tender attentions of a lynch mob from which Lillian Gish takes them away uh, in, in one of a few scenes where she, like a duck with the ducklings, has them walk in tow behind her in a combination of authority and tender care and protection that's typical of her uh, role in the movie and her performance. And it's, it's impressive. It's, it's, it also comes as a relief, of course. The, this is a 90-minute movie that often feels like a two-hour movie because of the suspense. There's never 20 seconds of boredom, but the suspense elongates it in ways that you don't quite realize until you have few moments like uh, a scene where the kids think they're safe. They're sleeping, again, a, a rural hobo ideal in, the, in a barn, in the upper story of a barn with a view of the moon. And then the, the devil comes and the boy asks, does he never rest? No, the devil never rests. No, he never rests. You know, I think we've made quite clear in this discussion that this is a film of the highest possible seriousness. Lawton brought everything he had to it. And yet, he, very innocently, had no idea that it was not going to go over. Uh, he, he thought, how can people not be drawn to a, a movie like this with, with an actor like Robert Mitchum in it? Paul Gregory saw the, the, the rough assemblage of the film. And he knew that Lawton was deeply vested in it. And that he was a very touchy and temperamental man. And he had... It, had trouble breaking it to him and he said Charlie you know um, it's an art picture we're going to get great reviews but it is not going to go over with the public and, and, and Lawton said and I can just imagine him saying it oh my god why he had no idea what he'd done and Gregory who very much had his 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 finger on the pulse of the public was absolutely right except it didn't even get good reviews um, the film completely befuddled uh, film critics who in the 50s were not very sophisticated at all. Uh, it did not succeed at the box office at all. Uh, and its failure left a permanent mark on Lawton's psyche. He had imagined himself as a film director. He'd gotten in the toy boxes, or Orson Welles said, and he had a grand time. 
and he'd create a masterpiece first time out of the box and the public would not accept it. He was set to direct a film after this. Uh, uh, Paul Gregory had actually bought the rights to Norman Mailer's The Arm, uh, The Naked and the Dead. Uh, and they indeed, uh, Lawton and Mailer spent time working on the screenplay. But in the end, Lawton was so uh, devastated by the failure of The Night of the Hunter that he never again tried to direct another film. He gave up on uh, uh, The Naked and the Dead. It ended up in the hands of, who was it, Raoul Walsh, somebody who had no notion of, of what the novel was about. It was a terrible flop. And Lawton returned to the stage, uh, which was by then his home. And uh, he, he did a couple of good screen roles after that, of course, uh, Spartacus in his very last film, Advise and Consent. But we cannot now watch The Night of the Hunter without realizing what a terrible, appalling loss to the, the history of the film it was. That Charles Law never got to do this again. Because this film is quite clearly the work of a director, not just a potential genius, but a fully realized genius. It is in that respect exactly like Citizen Kane, except it is not the work of a talented young prodigy. It's the work of a man uh, deep into middle age uh, who suddenly discovers that he has another capability of the highest order and pours himself into it. And it isn't accepted. God, how terrible. Yes. I, I have no under, no difficulty understanding how devastated he was. It's, uh, it, it's a somewhat sad note to end on, but it is uh, the part of moral seriousness to realize, as you said, that there is in artists a certain degree of innocence. They have to believe that they're doing a public good, that they're telling people a truth that is important for our lives, and that nevertheless they will be rejected, that... Uh, it, it's so strange and so fitting at the same time that a movie warning us about false prophets should be rejected. <laughs> and of course, the good news is for us that the film has survived, that uh, starting, I think, in the 70s was when attitudes began, began to change about it. It came increasingly to be recognized not as a, a one-off, as, a, a, as a, a, an interesting failure, but as a major work of art. And now, today, in the 21st century, you know, I don't know a film critic who doesn't uh, list uh, The Night of the Hunter very high on the list of important American films. And although Lawton was British, he completely identified with the United States, uh, lived most of his life here, uh, was devoted to the country, and made a film that is profoundly American in its subject matter. And now... Uh, long after his death, long after the deaths of everybody involved with the film, we recognize it as the masterpiece that it is, uh, and it's still here for us. So uh, there is that much of a happy ending yes, uh, exactly. in the, the strange, complicated story of The Night of the Hunter. And people, go see it or watch it again. Hopefully this conversation will help you discover yet more of what there is waiting there. As I keep saying, we have treasures we have merely but to inherit if we choose to. I was tweeting about how we were going to have this discussion, and somebody uh, wrote back to me and said he was a great Charles Lawton fan, and he knew that Lawton had directed Night of the Hunter, but he knew nothing about Lawton's stage career as a director and how it had led up to the film. Uh, you know, there's... 
there, there are all sorts of, of, of people out there who I think still think of Charles Lawton as, as Captain Bly. And he was so much more than that. And he's somebody I've written about a lot in the Wall Street Journal. And he's also, we should mention one more book. He is the subject of what, in my opinion, is the greatest theatrical biography ever written. Simon Callow's uh, Charles Lawton, A Difficult Actor, uh, in which he, among many other things, tells the story of how this film came to pass. And uh, after you've seen um, Night of the Hunter again, listeners, I urge you to seek out Callow's book. It will introduce you to one of the most fascinating and, and, and in a way, inspiring lives that theater has to offer. Not a happy life, not a well-adjusted life, but a, 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 the moving story of a man who realized his talent uh, against great odds. Um, and then go back and watch the movie again, because as we've been saying, you see something new every time you see it. Yes, and you're right. Seeing your announcement on Twitter let me know with quite a pleasant surprise that there are dozens and dozens of people looking forward to this on the spur of any given moment. Of course, hundreds of people will be listening to this and in future thousands, so hopefully Lawton will get even more appreciation and people will get more pleasure out of this movie. That's a nice thought. Thank you for joining me again, and let's find yet another masterpiece and talk about it next time. I think we can come up with something. I'm not too terribly worried about that. We should we should choose one of the quintessential film noir masterpieces for our next get-together. I'll tell you the I love that we ought to talk about, Nicholas Ray's On Dangerous Ground. All right, then we will make I think, that our next conversation. I think we can have some fun with that one. Yes. Thanks for joining me again, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. My pleasure.